Many, many years ago, people kept animals in captivity. All right, we're going back 2,000 years before Christ or something like that. There was some, there was always zoos of Chinese and Egyptians and so forth. Then it came to Europe, and then the kings and queens had their own little menageries, as they called them then, and there were a few traveling menageries. And you had the one in London, uh, around about 1824 or so. It's largely owned by the Prince Regent, I think, the animals. They were there, but around about 1824, somewhere around, maybe a little earlier, that the Parisian Zoo started. And it was uh, Stanford Raffles and was very keen on this idea. And he wanted to bring back, he was the... Uh, it's Raffles of Singapore. Uh, yes, famous man, founder of Singapore. So, okay, he comes back and he decides, well, we'd like to do something in London, and he forms the London Zoological Society. And the London Zoological Society starts about 1826. That's a little bit of a guess, I think 1826. They didn't open for a few years later, and they didn't open actually to the public until about 1844. And, of course, Dublin in those days wanted to do everything in the same way as London. So quite shortly after, a number of people met in Dublin in the Rotunda Rooms, about 1830, on the 10th of May, 1830, and they decided to form a society and got what is known as the Viceroy then to give them part of the Phoenix Park as a start. In the zoo in the Phoenix Park, animals have been kept for nearly 150 years in the best possible conditions. In 1889, the secretary of the society reported as follows. The stock of animals now in your gardens includes very fine examples of lions, tigers, leopards, buffaloes, the rare white Bactrian camels, elephants, llamas, bears and others, all in good health and condition. The Egyptian pariah dogs, captured on the field of battle at Tel el-Kaber and presented by Lieutenant Cusack, have produced pups and represent typical specimens of the kind of eastern dogs that ate up the body of Jezebel while Jehu was at his dinner. The animals have always been closely observed. Our great-grandparents were very keen on visiting the zoo, and in 1892, eminent Victorians could be found peering into the bear pit. Two Himalayan bear cubs have been successfully reared during the year, a circumstance entirely without example in the history of zoological gardens. Many distinguished naturalists among our members availed themselves of this unique opportunity of observing the sanitary precautions of the mother bear, who, at a fixed hour each morning, when the sun shone, might be observed airing the straw bed of her cubs in the sunshine, turning it over literally straw by straw, and as the process was noted to last from 35 to 55 minutes, all curious naturalists had ample time for observation. Nowadays there's a new philosophy and new imperatives in regard to keeping animals. The director of the zoo, Terry Murphy. In those days it was nothing to bring back animals and the main thing was just to try and keep them alive. The interpretation of how a zoo was run was completely different to what we have today. Actually, today no zoo, no zoo takes any animals from the wild. They're all coming from other zoos. We have been breeding, we're breeding so many today that we're overbreeding, which is a very good point, because if we weren't overbreeding, we would undoubtedly be taking from the wild. But of all species? All species. There are exceptions, of course, which are difficult, and this is what we are concentrating on. This is the whole point of what we're going to come to in Cork. We're going to concentrate on the animals that are difficult to breed and try and make animal banks. But the wild is disappearing very fast, and you can quite understand that in these fast developing countries, and, and people give you figures, but double the population in 
the year 2000. So there is no room left for wild animals, in other words. I've been out in Malaya. They're cutting down the trees at the rate of something like a, an acre a day. Uh, the same applies in South America for the hardwood. That's changing the whole climate, everything of the world. And of course these the trees Yes, absolutely. The ecology is completely lost. All the animals that lived in the trees, they're disappearing. That means other animals are disappearing. The ecology is completely upset. If the zoological society is to carry out its functions adequately, there's the question of money. Well, of course, today a zoo is becoming a very expensive item to run. When I came here first, which is many years ago, <laughs> I don't like to think about it, 1943, but even when I took over my appointment of director in 57, we probably were taking about less than 300,000 pounds. And the number of visitors was somewhere about the same. Now we're taking 700,000 visitors to run the gardens. We're talking about, well, this year we'll be talking about obviously a million pounds. This is gate money? No, this is to run the zoo. It's costing a million pounds. You, you will get a lot of extra money coming in. We, get, we take the gate money, that's very important to it. That's, that's the most important area, and that depends upon weather, political conditions, and everything, how we do there. But you then have we have a membership. You have been with uh, adverse things like the bombing in Dublin. That, that, that took us up to 74, as far as I remember. Now, that was a big drop, a serious drop in numbers that year. And then we came back the following year. People from the country wouldn't come after that. That was not the first time that events in the city had affected attendances. The annual report for 1916 had an item headed, The Gardens and the Rebellion. Reference has already been made to the serious monetary loss which the society suffered as one result of the outbreak in Dublin in Easter week. The difficulty of bringing the collections safely through that week was great, and it's hardly surprising that wild rumours of the shooting of our lions and tigers because no food could be procured for them, were current and were believed in some quarters. Members of the society should know that the preservation of the collections was mainly due to the zeal and courage of Mrs. B. B. Ferrer and the keepers under her instructions. On Easter Monday, 24th of April, the superintendent had gone, as usual, to his military duties at the Royal Barracks, where he was necessarily detained from the outbreak of the revolt until Thursday, the 4th of May. In the morning, the gardens were full of visitors, most of whom hurried away when news of the conditions in the city reached the park. One family from Torquay, finding it impossible to get home, returned and was lodged for the night in the Horton House. The refreshment room was happily well stocked with provisions and the immediate wants of the residents and some of the animals were thus provided for. Through the week, the keepers could not go to and from their homes, except at risk of their lives. Mrs. Farrow arranged, therefore, for J. Supple, J. Flood and T. Kelly to lodge on the premises, and the others attended when they could. Heavy firing about Fibsborough on Tuesday 25th was all too audible in the park, and on Thursday the 27th, rifle bullets passed over the gardens. The most serious difficulty to be faced was the feeding of the large carnivora. As it was impossible to get horses from the city, it became necessary to sacrifice some of the less valuable stock in the gardens so that an old pony, a donkey, a goat and a few dingoes were used to keep the lions and tigers in food. The secretary was able to reach the gardens on three occasions by way of Island Bridge or Chapel Lizard and to convey some urgently needed provisions. What kind of people look after the animals in the zoo? Just let me make one little remark in here. I would not like to take the person at the 
Somebody comes along and says, my daughter absolutely loves animals. She's terribly keen. She's going to the university. She loves them. And she would be absolutely perfect in the zoo. That person is not right for me, possibly. The person must have an understanding of animals, which is very, very careful, very, very important. They have an understanding, a feeling, uh, to put themselves in the same position as an animal and not to anthropomorphize and say, oh, well, I've got three meals a day and I have a lovely bed at night, the animal must have the same. No way. You must get down to what exactly the animal requires itself and how it feels. What you're saying is don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Yes. You want professionals in this game, and you don't want them to be emotional about animals. Yes, we are. But uh, the person, I'm also saying that the person that might be very, very good may not be a complete zoologist or may not be highly qualified, but they may have that understanding like a shepherd with his sheep, and much more important to me. Mary Doyle works in the zoo as a veterinary nurse. She does for animals what ordinary nurses do for humans. Yes, it's exactly the same. It's surgical nursing, medical nursing, and sort of general nutrition and care of the animals. The surgical nursing involves sort of uh, prepping animals for operations, assisting the vet during the operation, and preparing all the instruments and that for the operation, and you assist them then, and then you take care of the animal after the operation, and you would take care of it maybe while it's convalescing if an animal's got a fractured leg and that it's going to need special nursing and special care and a special diet and you also that's sort of surgical nursing then medical nursing would involve treatments looking after animals with particular diseases like say heart disease or if it had some sort of kidney failure or animals say that are paraplegic that have got partial paralysis say of the hindquarters you'd have to take care of it it's need quite intensive nursing Mary Doyle is not a big girl physically, so how does she handle large animals? Carefully. You have to be quite careful when you're dealing with a large animal and you've got to sort of um, assess whether the animal is quiet or whether it is dangerous and how dangerous it is. And uh, the larger animals, say like uh, camels and that, can be pretty docile. Even the giraffes, if you're careful with them, you can walk in with them. But other animals, especially sort of like tigers or lions, you obviously cannot walk in with one of those. The only time you can, or the only way of dealing with them really is to give them um, a general anaesthetic, which could be, you know, if the animal must be, must be treated by the vet, it would be given a dart, and then it would be able to be examined while it was asleep. But uh, smaller, smaller animals like the cubs and that you can handle up to about two or three weeks of age. But after that, you, you're taking a risk of getting bitten, unless the animal is going to be tame, unless it's going to be handled. But. Um, Really, most of the animals are okay to handle. They're all right. The smaller ones are okay, and if you're careful, it's not too hard. Not too hard, maybe, but sometimes hazardous for nurses and keepers. Well, I was looking after while I was helping the elephant keeper when one of the young Asian elephants was ill, and I got bitten then by it. I was hand-feeding it, and I put my hand in the wrong way, and, or took it out the wrong way, rather, and I got my finger caught between its teeth. But he didn't even know it bit me. My finger could have just been a stick of celery, for all he knew. But it wasn't serious. There's a weekly visit from the vet, Jim Kavanagh, who consults with the resident zoologist, Sean McKeown. Each week brings new problems. Uh, there are two or three main th items I want to look at this morning. Um, first is the giraffe, the mother. She may to have a look at her udder and make sure it's not too full. Um, second, there's a jaguar cub, which we have to inoculate. Against, uh, oh, against the uh, feline enteritis. 
and then there's the um, Saras crane, which is lame, which we won't have a look at. Yeah. Will we be able to catch that Saras crane? Uh, yeah, I yeah, I think so. Yeah. With, without breaking its leg. Without breaking its leg. <laughs> I hope so. Um, the, that um, cub is eight weeks old, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. time. It's time it was done. Is it a male or a female? It's a female. Yeah, we better do her. And yeah, um, she's separated down there yeah. now. So we what about the polar bear? Do we want to? We have a look at it. It's. it's, has, it's he, has he been let out? He's been let out. He's quite. Um, He's a slight limp, but otherwise he's quite normal. His feeding habits are um, he's eating his normal Is he out at the moment? He's out at the moment. Oh, yeah. wandering around. I'd like to see him when he's out. He's I would prefer to have seen him before he was let out, to see how he came out. You have a better idea of how they move when they're coming out first. We'll go and have a look at him anyhow. And look at the, at the giraffe is important, because we might have to put her on to antibiotics and keep her on antibiotics if the other is filled up unnecessarily. That's the female Saris crane. It was lame the last day when we were here and um, we decided not to do anything with it. It's not, it wasn't lame enough to warrant radical intervention. And their legs are so long that you're reluctant to catch them because they're very fragile and they snap off like matchsticks if you're too rough with them. But that one doesn't seem to be any better today I think we'll have to catch her and make an investigation and see can we arrive at some diagnosis. That was the vet's opinion. The Cyrus Crane saw things otherwise. Watch those claws. Is this leg shown? Sorry, Matt, can I just see the hot Take her just down there, would you? There is a, a swelling on that hock joint and it's quite possible there's an arthritis developing in that. Just let me see the other one. Okay, hang on. There's no evidence, of, no great evidence of inflammation in it are no great heat which is a great indication of what about damage no bumblefoot, no. there's no sign of bumblefoot that foot seems perfectly clear it's very relaxed the uh, the, the toe, toe yeah. just let me get that stifle there Sean I think it's up there. No, it's not in the hump. It's, it's, it's just in the stifle there. Yeah. I think we'll have to x-ray that. There's a lot of swelling and inflammation around that area. We'll have to x-ray that, Sean. I haven't the x-ray with me at the moment, but we'll come back and do that in the next day or so. We'll be able to catch We'll be able to catch Right. Okay, let her go. When she runs away now, she doesn't appear to be so lame, but that's because she's excited. Mm -hmm. But if you watch her when she settles down, you'll lame. see the degree of lameness becomes more marked. The x-ray was taken two days later in the surgery. 
Now just take your wings the way you had them. There we are. <coughs> You'll find it a bit awkward to manage with those. John, you're well out of range there. Little back, back, little back. There we are. Yeah, just keep that. Put your fingers on the table, and that'll steady it. Okay. Right. Can get another plate there, Mary. We leave her where she is. Take that one with you and leave it. Don't, don't mix them. Let's see what that comes up with. This is going to be a little bit different, Liam. Um, now we'll get her nearly on her back uh, with the leg. Sorry, take that wing up All right. Let's no. now. And so the Cyrus crane was looked after and put right. And there were other animals. There's a snake up in the reptile house, a bit wheezy. It's one of the Indian pythons. And it's um, breathing a little bit heavy, and you can hear it wheezing. So, will we go up and have a look at it? Yeah, is that, isn't that the one that. Uh, well, would it be the one that had it before? There was one of those that had a little bit of difficulty in breathing before, and I think we gave it Pen Britain. Yes, I can see. And if we look up the records, we can find what sort of treatment it got. You got them there? Yep. Down here. Is this the same colour that was. Um, um, had this condition previously? Yes, right, yeah. A couple of years ago. Yeah, had a, a little bit of a nasal discharge. Yeah. We gave him some handwritten. Will we have a look? Yeah. That's right. We're not being recorded, are we? Yeah. Joe, you want somebody with you, do you? You must be joking. Imagine that coming from you, Mr. Joe. When you're trying to protect you? Do you, do you want to lock the house? That'll be alright. It'll only take a minute. Do you have you have the stuff there? I, have it. I just wanted to have a look first. Yeah. Okay. Is there a is there a nasal discharge this time? There's not now, but his breathing there's a bit of a wheeze or no. Like you can actually hear it rather than see it. Yeah. I just get a stick then. Right. Is this chair poisonous? No, he's um constrictor. Yeah, they killed by constriction. He's just wrapped himself around you. Yeah, there. It's quite, quite big, quite strong. Yeah. What weight would he be? Oh, uh, Joe, what weight is he? Gosh, when, I think when did you last weigh him? I'd say he's around 50 pounds. 50 pounds. They're misleading as well because they're very densely built, you know? Yeah. It's all muscle. You'll see now in a minute. And they're quite warm to hold. Huh? Oh, quite pleasant. You'll feel them now in a second. It's a misconception on the part of the public that they're slimy. Well, they look slow. Yeah, they, they give that impression, yeah. And uh, is he normally asleep at this time, yeah? Well, this guy is just about to shed his skin, so he's quiet. And at this time of the year, of course, they're a little... Let's see, there you go. But this sort of thing that I'm doing now, I wouldn't recommend for a, a wild snake. You're trying to get him out with a long-handled brush? Yep. You just get the head around it, the proper end. Has one of these ever wrapped himself around you? Oh, I've had my times, all right. <laughs> one or two scares. But you have to learn the business. This guy now is about 12 feet. 
And if you like to put your hand under, you get a, an idea of the weight. Now that's pure muscle. It's in great condition. <laughs> Sean, do take that part. Quite sneezy, he's snuffly. Yeah, he's a bit wheezy. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Can I get just get behind you there for a second? Sorry, John. The, the violin here, Joe. It is quite heavy. He's, he's surprisingly heavy. I, I think you'll estimate it now at 65 pounds instead of 50. So we all held on to a large python suffering from the flu while a needle was stuck into him. After that, we moved on again. The polar bear, we want to have a look at. The polar bear was lame about, suddenly lame, about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. And we were afraid of a fractured femur. And we were tempted to anaesthetise him and x-ray him, but we thought that the distress of anaesthetising him and subjecting him to, this, to an x-ray examination might aggravate a fracture. If there was a fracture there, might cause displacement because it did appear that if there was a fracture there it wasn't displaced. So we left him in his cage confined for six weeks and he gradually improved and we let him out last week and we're going to have a look now and see what he's like. Come on Utek, Utek, come on, that's a boy. That's him there on the right. We let, had to let him out last week um, well, to see how he was. And he'd gone off his food. He'd sort of got a little lonely inside for the female. So eventually let him out. And he seemed to have a slight limp. So he's got a lot better now. I think the exercise is helping. And he loves the water. Yeah. As you can see, they love playing with each other. He's the bigger, broader nose, it's the male. Both those animals came from northern Canada as cubs last year. And uh, they were going to be... The, sh the parents were shot, they could come down to rubbish dumps in the wintertime, down south of Canada. And uh, normally what they do, they transport, transport them if mother and cubs back up to the North Pole, but as the mother was shot, they had to take them into captivity. They wouldn't survive on their own. So uh, we got them from Canada, the Canadian government. Polar bears are the most dangerous animals in the zoo. They fear nothing, and their strength is incredible. And they will never retreat. They will always advance. And if um, another animal got in there, they would just tear them apart. They literally rip them asunder and they have claws and the claws are nearly as big as your fingers each each claw is nearly as big as your finger and if you can imagine ten of those in front and ten behind they, 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 they'll rip any animal to pieces 
and yet they're so beautiful looking and they look so docile I want to see that fellow walking up that fellow that was had the injured hind leg he's more intent on sitting on the water he knows there's no food up there from it I think he realizes we're conning him in a house above the lion park in an uncomfortably narrow passageway we encountered a lioness who is distinctly unfriendly the great smell of uh, urea Pressing myself as close as possible to the wall, I got away from the lioness and came on a Siberian tigress. She's due next uh, Friday. She likes to be scratched. But she could go over three to four days either way. That's her den in here. She goes round in there to it. It's, it's got hay in it, so. It's nice and warm. Sure, she doesn't look that heavy. Well, she, ne she never is. She never shows very much. She is heavy there. See? <laughs> Just in the front. Yeah. That's when she's, she's normally a light framed animal. Yeah, she's anyway, very. So she carries her young rather. We like, like to keep them fairly agile. Because if they, you feed them too, up too much, they get very fat and uh, listless. and It's bad for the animal too, so go overweight. I think she's looking better than she has for a long time. Her coat is much improved too. Yeah, she's, she's, she looks very well. Of course, it's the winter coat, so much nicer. The meal is outside. But even so, when she had a summer coat on her, it was quite long, but it looked a bit shaggy. Yeah, it does, yeah. She's a beautiful face, that animal. Oh, yeah. Come on, come on. It's quite tame. She likes to scratch the side of her cheeks. Yeah. I had always thought that chimpanzees were amiable, harmless animals which indulged in tea parties. A visit to their quarters with their keeper dispelled that notion. How intelligent are these chimps? Extremely day day. intelligent animals. Very, very intelligent. You see a lot of them? Oh yes, I handle them most of the time, yes. And um, in what way do they show their intelligence? Well, they they're inclined to fight with weapons. If they like, if they get a, if they if they're out in the enclosure and they get annoyed with the public, they'll they'll throw a weapon, like something like a stone or or a, a stick, which gi which gives them an intelligence above other animals, you know. They also spit. Oh, they spit. They're spitting here now at the moment, as you can see. And oh, well, uh, how f how close can you get to them? Well, I could I could handle them, but they actually drink out of out of mugs. <laughs> you caught that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> 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 they are very active, yeah. They actually drink from mugs. Now, I must hand them the mug and I must be able to retrieve it at the same time, you know. So yes. when it's empty, they hand it back. Like, uh, we have a good relationship. And what about the male? He looks immensely strong. Oh, he, he's, he's quite strong, but he's, he's not aggressive with me. He's not no way aggressive with me at all. He only gets, becomes aggressive if anyone strange comes in and one of the females is on heat. I bet he is at the moment. She's on heat and... Uh, He's, he, she'll keep to the background, as you can see there all the time, because he'll keep between us and her. You know, he thinks we're going to take her. 
Mind you, he's welcome to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't go into the cage with them. No, there has been occasions when we, we met all right, but not... Uh, no, deliberately I wouldn't go into the cage, no. There was an occasion when Congola got in with me one day into a cage and uh, he, he was supposed to be in sick and he lifted the door and all of a sudden we were together, but I talked him down a bit, you know. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's quite a good boy. He didn't touch you? He didn't touch me, no, at all. And he seems to recognise you, he keeps looking at you. Oh, he, he is, uh, he's wondering why so many people are allowed in here, like he's, 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 he's questioning the whole affair now, you know. And he knows she's on heat here and he's not too pleased at all. <laughs> He's quite a big animal. Anyone drops in anything like a scarf or that, he'll put it around his neck. He knows where it should go, or a hat, he'd put it on his head, and walk around with it all day. But he will, of course, hand it over at night for food. He'll do a deal with you. You ask him for the, the item, he'll hand it over. This habit they have of spitting, do you think that's uh, acquired from humans? Oh, that was picked up from the public, undoubtedly, yes. When they were in closer contact. Down here it's much better now. We have uh, the dike, the water dike between the public and the chimpanzees, and we have glass at the top of this, the steps, which gives them a great deal more freedom and privacy you know, from the public. But we still get items thrown into them, like papers and cans and bits and pieces like that. You have a look at his mouth when it was open there, it's quite... You can see the large canine teeth, jaws, very powerful, do a lot of damage. There's one particular um, chap in England, he was attacked by a chimpanzee, male chimpanzee, and uh, lost both his arms and um, had his face badly mauled. There's another bad habit. You pick that up from the public as well. <laughs> Animal behaviour is sometimes hard to understand. We keep our gibbons on islands. It's a lovely way to keep them because you've got trees on the islands and a short distance across. In this case, it was only about 12, 15 feet from the shore to the island. And these two gibbons were very, very playful. One, a black one called Bimbo, had always been a great friend of everybody, a great friend of mine and was on the island, been on the island for a couple of years actually. And one day, there was a commotion, and we found that he jumped off the island and was chasing an Asian, who had been a student who had been in the gardens. And he chased him all the way up to the gardens, bit him actually, caught him and bit him, and he ran into the restaurant for protection. And the gibbon sat on a wall outside the restaurant, uh, the poor man was very upset inside, but the gibbon seemed to have calmed down immediately. Children came along, were stroking the gibbon, feeding him little bits and pieces. And by the time we'd heard this and arrived down, in fact, we found it very easy on the first occasion that this had happened, that he'd been out, to net him, because he was, wasn't expecting it. So we netted him and put him in a cage. Tended the poor student who had had a few bites in the arm and hands. So I didn't think very much about it when I said that something's wrong. But anyway, after a while, we decided, well, we put him out in the island again. It must have been just an exception. We cut back branches and so forth. And any chance that he could get off, put it back on. And it was only within two weeks later, they jumped off the island again. 
But this time he went all the way down as far as our sea line pond at four o'clock in the day when they were being fed, and there was hundreds of people around there. And he went over to one particular person and bit them. And this was another Asian who had to run for his life also. So obviously something to do with the colour of the skin. Uh, not necessarily. I think that he recognised somebody from his own part of the world who he considered a danger. Once you start Terry Murphy talking about animals, he's difficult to stop. In the earlier days, when um, I lived here more or less on my own, and we had a, a nice iron cooker, and that was our form of cooking and heating, quite often something would be neglected, perhaps, cub. We would take it in, put it on top of the agar, keep it nice and warm, start bottle feeding, and where before we knew where we were, we had quite a number of creatures around the house. I got into a little bit of trouble from time to time because on one occasion, I remember we had a couple of kittens, we had a duckling, we had an otter, and we had some tiger cubs. And later on in the day, I'd been in trouble with a uh, camel and I carried the camel up. Well, that was the last straw. I would leave it out completely. For wives don't but react too well <laughs> to this kind of thing. But it was great fun because most of these animals, when they grew up, the only difficulty is getting them back into the zoo again because they come too humanized, which is a very bad thing. You want to keep your animals a little bit of a distance uh, so they can reinstate themselves in with other animals. And this is one of the careful things one must do in the future. But these would be running around the house and uh, tiger cubs quite playing with the Pekingese dog, tiger cubs the size of Alsatians, and the Pekingese dog running around with them, all great friends. I understand the dog was the boss in that. Oh, absolutely, because you remember when the dog was there, they arrived smaller than the dog. He sees them growing, they're frightened of the dog. The dog was always the master. And even if the dog had a bone and they came near him, one growled from the dog and the tigers had run away. Yeah. And he could chase them around the house. He was a delightful creature too. But you kept this closeness, especially to the big cats. I've seen you putting your arms into cages with full-grown animals and calling them over to you and fondling them. Well, I spend how I work my day, mostly in the summer, not so much in the winter, I appreciate, as you appreciate. But in the summer, I get up very early in the morning, I go around the zoo, I go around everywhere that I can and I look through all my animal stock. So I'm talking to the animals. I'm fondling them. I haven't got to do anything else. I haven't got to tell them to move from one cage to another. I am only talking to them. So I'm accepted much more as a friend as probably somebody else who has to move them from time to time or maybe put them in a box. And by those means, I get that little personal contact. And if you talk to any anybody talking to animals, and keepers are all very good themselves, they have their personal uh, friends amongst each animal as well. So you do have this, but it's something one doesn't like anybody to take chances on because you must understand and know your animals at the same time and know that possibly, not that they have a hangover, but they could feel one morning a headache or tummy ache. And you just go, you just got to recognize that. And you will see this very quickly after long experience with the animal. You will see how he reacts. And this is so important to know how he's going to feel and what he is going to do. Well, have you had any accidents? Have you misjudged the occasion? Yes, I, n yes, I have. I've 
done the obvious thing that I've told everybody else not to do, not to take a chance with any animal, and we wouldn't allow any keeper, we always advise any keeper not to go into the animals. But on one occasion, uh, with a chimp, who was very friendly with me, wasn't too friendly with anybody else, but he was very friendly with me, and I had a photographer with me, and he wanted to get some photographs, and I put my hand in, and I was stroking him away, and he was taking the photograph, and the flash upset him. And he immediately turned to me, and he gave me a very severe bite on my hand. I stopped him by the same way as anybody else would with a dog. I said, Joey, stop, stop. I didn't feel anything until I took my hand out, and I found that I was very badly lacerated. Poor photographer nearly passed out, but he took me down to the hospital, and I had 22 stitches across my hand. Every time I came back, and came back, well, I was a day out, but I came back in two days' time, very much big bandage around my hand, and as I go past Joey's cage, you could see Joey go into a corner and put his head down, absolutely ashamed of what he had done. The present zoo is too small, and there's no hope of expansion, since the corporation and people of Dublin quite rightly regard the Phoenix Park as holy ground. So the Zoological Society must look elsewhere. Unfortunately, very much as we would like to have a little more land in the zoo, we've only 32 acres here, and of that 32, there's eight acres of water. So we've a small zoo, a very attractive zoo, a very beautiful zoo. But we can't do the major job that's required of a zoo today without expanding. And we've looked around within a reasonable distance but found that we cannot find anything. And it was just chance conversation that I had with somebody from Cork, they said, oh yes, we were thinking of forming a society down there. And I said, well, is this what would be the possibilities? And I'm a member of the Wildlife Advisory Council, and it was a, one of the members of the council that mentioned it in, in the university, and said, oh, well, we get in touch with the university. I'm quite sure they're quite, they'd like to do it. So the next thing was the vice president, which is Professor Tomer, after he was in touch with me and saying what I could to Cork. So I went down to Cork, we looked at the island, which they have down there called Photo Island, and it's a very beautiful island. It's about a thousand acres. It's a, a bridge of a short span across, on and off the island. It's not really an island, it's rather a marshy outlet and then an island, you know. So uh, we looked around. They have a beautiful arboretum down there. It's a world-famous arboretum. They have a lovely house. And they had a lovely area, which they said they would give to the society on the same basis as we have the land in Dublin, which is at the people's pleasure or the king's pleasure in the old days. And you're going to get a harmony of people and animals and better understanding. We are particularly going to go into the Irish mammals, too, to try and display them as you would see them and, of course, breed them.